Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, I'm going to find out how a major supplier of vacuum equipment is reducing its carbon emissions in line with the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, and also how it's helping its customers to reduce their emissions. But first, if we want more people to become interested in physics, sending out the wrong signals about the discipline on social media is the surest way to fail. Memes portraying physics as being extremely difficult, or of physicists being old white men, certainly don't help. Next up, Physics World's Mateen Durrani chats with the Institute of Physics campaign manager Georgina Phillips, who shares practical tips for how to finesse your physics messaging on social media. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure you already like physics, but there's lots of people out there who would love to do physics, but who either don't know how to get into the subject or who face barriers getting into it. So I'm delighted to be joined by Georgina Phillips from the Institute of Physics, who's part of the Limit Less campaign, which is trying to support young people to change the world and fulfill their potential by doing physics. Now, the Institute has just released a set of guidelines for social media which is, of course, where many of us get our physics information from these days. Hi, Georgina. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> now, let's start with the basics. So do you want to remind people what the Limitless campaign is and what it's trying to do? Yes. So the, uh, the Limitless campaign is a bit of a new way of working at the uh, Institute of Physics. Um, we've obviously been working in schools for decades and trying to encourage young people to do physics. Uh, but the Limitless campaign is slightly less focused on us delivering programs and us now influencing people uh, more widely um, to try and encourage young people. So the Limitless campaign is looking to increase the amount of young people taking physics post-16 in UK and Ireland, and specifically from underrepresented and underserved groups. So these include girls, disadvantaged young people, disabled young people, LGBT plus young people, and young people of Black Caribbean descent, who we've found from our data are all either underrepresented or not progressing as far as we want um, with physics. So kind of building on the research that we have the IOP, but also elsewhere, we know that young people aren't the problem. A lot of programs out there quite often are like, if only we can inspire the young people and show them as much fun and stuff as possible, that'll change their minds. But research such as at UCL, the Aspires Longitudinal Study, showed that low science aspirations amongst young people isn't to do with a lack of interest in science. They think it's, it's valuable and worthwhile and it's a subject they enjoy, but they still don't see being a scientist as something that's for them. And one of the contributing factors seems to be is that they aren't getting messaging from the people in their lives around them that physics is something they can do or that physics can lead to a job that they'll find interesting or a job that will pay you well. So what we're trying to do with the campaign is instead of focusing on the young people, we're looking at the influencing the influences of young people. So this includes their families, their communities, it is working in schools, but also outside of the physics classroom. So are they hearing unhelpful things in maths and English that might be putting them off from doing physics? Um, we're also looking at government, so policymakers um, and also politicians to try and help ensure that the frameworks that schools are using are being as supportive as possible. And we're also looking at the media and the messaging that young people are getting there. And of course, 
the media that young people are using probably more than anyone, social media. That's right. So, I mean, you've summarised the Limitless campaign pretty well there. So, yeah, as you say, you know, we all, whether we like to admit it or not, get a lot of our information from social media. And there's a huge sort of role that that plays in the modern world, like it or not. Um, so what sort of um, what sort of problems are the guidelines trying to address in particular? So, yeah, like you said, it's social media is is everywhere and is for a lot of people becoming their kind of primary source of information. We've seen this a lot with the fact that most people get their news from social media, but yeah, increasingly more and more people are getting their information. And we're also just aware of the amount of like time that people are spending there. So for example, we ran a series of experiment videos by some established influencers on TikTok as part of the campaign, and they've had 1.3 million views, which sounds a lot, but when we converted it to hours, it seems even more. So it was 61,500 hours of viewing, which is almost seven years worth of viewing. (laughs) And so, um, and that's just on like a few videos that we've got. So what we're aware of is that um, this is, yeah, where young people are, this is where they're getting their entertainment, but increasingly where they're getting their actual informative information. So when they get looking up stuff for GCSEs, quite often, They'll watch videos on YouTube. Some of it's tailored to the curriculum, but some of it's just, you know, typing in a keyword and watching. Um, People might go to places like Reddit to ask questions. So the problems that we're trying to address is if this is where young people are getting their information, we just want to make sure that the information they're getting is as helpful as possible, as correct as possible, um, and also as encouraging as possible. We don't want them... Uh, looking up a topic and the first thing they find is is something that's going to put them off and discourage them from going further. So the social guidelines, social media guidelines kind of came out of this desire to be able to help people who are creating uh, content around physics on social media to make their material as accessible as possible, both in the technical sense the physics sense, and, and also ensuring that none of the messaging could be unintentionally reinforcing stereotypes about who physics is and isn't for. So yes, that's why we came up with the guidelines. Right. So the, so the guidelines are available online to look at, and we'll, we'll share the link at the end. But I thought it'd be nice if you could sort of suggest a few top tips for listeners. Um, so what, what are your top tips for people using social media? We produced um, five sections um, on the online version. Um, so I've taken one tip from each of those sections to kind of give you a bit of a flavor of what the guidelines are doing. Because we, yeah, we're also aware that for some people, they might be really tech savvy. They use social media all the time, maybe for like personal use, but they haven't tried promoting the physics they work on on there. So the guidelines for those people, but also for some people who um, might be completely new to social media. And so that, some of it's a bit more technical there. So some people, they are only little parts, but for others, they might want to read the whole thing. So I, I, a little taster menu of <laughs> what we've got. So um, the first chapter we've got um, was around how to promote good physics. Um, so one of the key things we want people to try and avoid is portraying physics as too difficult. Um, so whilst it may seem good to praise young people for having an interest in a, in a smart subject, this can, however, put off young people who feel that these subjects are only for the smartest kids in the class or pe- for people who are, quote, 
naturally gifted rather than physics being like a subject like anything else that you've got to work hard at but as you work harder at it you'll you'll get better at it um so in the guidelines we share a video from dr becky that kind of encourages the viewer to investigate physics more and is a, a nice accurate portrayal of the subject as a community effort building on the work of others rather than lone geniuses with light bulb moments so uh, that's one of the things um around promoting good physics we we really want to see that physics is is some uh, something that we can work at rather than something you're born knowing <laughs> um, so don't, don't, don't overemphasize how hard it is you know this is something that everyone can have a go at and if you if you try and work at it you'll, you'll get better okay so that that's the first one yeah. yeah we don't expect people to like open a french textbook and suddenly be fluent but some people feel like <laughs> if they don't get physics on day one then it's not for them and, and we want to kind of cancel that idea um and yeah we're touching on uh, we've got a whole section on challenging stereotypes because as we mentioned the, the campaign is focused on groups that have been historically underrepresented and we don't want the material they're watching now to reinforce that. So um, we conducted um, a, quite a rough and ready meta-analysis of 47 science channels on YouTube with a combined subscribership of over 160 million. And when we looked at them, when these channels were presented by individuals, white male presenters outnumbered non-white male presenters and non-male presenters nearly two to one. Wow. So there's still quite a, the stereotypical image of it, it being a white man, even if it's a younger white man in this instance, was is kind of being reinforced. And also if videos are animated, they are often still narrated by male voices. So one of the things that we told people is that if they're considering producing a video, um, it's uh, if you're choosing a narrator for a video, it's imp also important to consider things like accents. Even if you can't see a person, people infer a lot from someone's voice and therefore the accent of a presenter can be reused to reinforce or counter a stereotype. And if you're producing content as a group, it's important to pay attention to the roles. So getting a good mix of people on screen is not enough if the one person who's leading the experiments is, is always male. So um, trying to make sure that if you, you're you presenting something as a group activity, that everyone in the group is involved, kind of enforcing, again, that physics is a, a community endeavor and, and, and not just something that one person does. Um, right. So kind of diversity of voices, yeah. Okay. Yeah, diversity, yeah. And, and obviously, we're not saying... If, if you're white and male, please don't produce content. What we're saying is like also about potentially inviting people on to join you with content. This happens a lot with, you'll find on YouTube with like makeup uh, creators, they'll invite other makeup artists on and then that helps people feed each other's audiences as well, like sharing audiences. So we also kind of want to make the physics community as collaborative as possible. So encouraging people to potentially like go onto other people's channels or like share people's other stuff on Twitter and Instagram, um, which leads on to the, the next bit, which we're looking at how you actually use the social media. So like the technical part of that, um, the top, top tip I pulled from there was around um, the best times to post on social media. So we've got some information um, in the guideline, but also this is quite often something you can find if you're using a particular platform. Um, we pulled some numbers from Sprout Social that have said, for example, for Instagram, the best day and time to post is Monday to fr Friday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. So around lunchtime is when you're going to get the best best results. Really? Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> apparently so. Um, whilst Twitter um, is has a shorter day range, so Tuesday to Thursday, um, but from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. seems to be the better. And uh, you can kind of, depending on the type of content you're doing as well, 
and the audience you're trying to reach. So whether that is young people directly or if you're trying to reach um, parents, there are different times there. But that's just something to bear in mind, particularly with something like Twitter, where tweets will disappear off very quickly. It's good to kind of be as targeted as possible so as many people <laughs> see it. And a lot, a lot of the guidelines looks at around high quality visual assets. So whether that's images or videos and um, a stat that um, I really enjoy that one of my colleagues shared with me um, is research has shown that people only remember 10% of what they learn after 72 hours. And when text is accompanied by a visual asset, people can retain 65% of the information after three days. Wow. So having it doesn't just make your social media look nicer, but actually having like a, an infographic or, or or a photo of something is going to actually affect how long people retain that information. And we also bear in mind, um, I'm sure the same with you, quite often some of the visual material, like if we're watching a video, we might be watching it with the sound off. So the visual is actually probably doing more work than um, what people are saying. Um, so we encourage people to try and use as much interesting imagery as they can um, with their materials um, and consider things like subtitles, um, which also leads on to, I've, I've got it last, but it's certainly not least, um, is around accessibility. So one of the five underserved groups we're looking at in the campaign are disabled young people. And so we really want to make sure that any content people are creating is as accessible as possible. But as we all know, since, you know, living our lives online over the past couple of years, improving accessibility also makes content just more accessible to everyone, such as subtitles. So you can view content without sound or just making it so that, yeah, if part of your digital device isn't working, you can still access part of it. So um, an easy first step every anyone can do with their social media. And I've started doing with mine, I have to remind myself, um, is adding alt text to images. Um, so though these work as image descriptions, you'll quite often see if you're posting an image, Twitter will quite often give you a little box to click on. Um, and this acts, um, descriptive text is what text-to-speech or text-to-braille software will read to describe images on social media. So this helps paint a mental picture of the image you've posted for people who may be using screen readers. Um, and these descriptions don't have to be... Um, like cover everything but you know if there's information you're trying to get across in that image you want everyone to be able to engage with that image and sometimes if you do have something like we've developed an infographic as part of the social media guidelines we have a web page with a text version so that we could get all that information in so um yeah that's something to consider so yes a little cherry picking of uh of the areas we covered <laughs> yeah I mean, they all sound really useful, and I suppose you know people, they they will take will t you know bearing those things in mind. It requires a bit more effort, but then you know surely that's the point of doing this kind of work is to make sure that you know your social media is reaching the widest number of people. So the extra effort you can put in, you know, hopefully pays off. Um, so what's been the response to uh, the guidelines? I mean, have you has, has anyone used them yet? Are there, have you got any nice examples of you know somebody you know following your advice and saying, wow, you know, that's made a real difference? So we only released them a couple of weeks ago, but the response has been really positive. We received over 40,000 impressions on our social media posts. Um, we launched them on LinkedIn, Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, um, and the web the website has been visited uh, over a thousand times and the pdf version um has been do downloaded over a hundred times from the website so 
we've got a series of web pages which are a bit more interactive, but we also made a PDF version which so people could have something physical if that's what they preferred. Um, and we've seen a really positive response from the community as well. There were lots of physicists sharing it. Um, the Lightyear Foundation, who work with special education needs in STEM, they've shared it. They also contributed to checking that it was like accessible um the physics teaching podcast has shared it and um yeah we've in general it seems we've had a really good response and and really pleased to see as well people commenting on some of the things they hadn't thought of or yeah trying out things like the alt text seems to be a, a good first step for some people um but yeah we're hoping and we and we'd love to hear back from anyone who does use it if it is useful if there's anything they'd add we're very aware as well like trying to write a guide for social media um when we started i don't think tiktok was even I think it was still called <laughs> Musical.ly. And in right. the course of us writing the social media guidelines, suddenly everyone was like, you haven't written anything about TikTok. And it's just like, so yeah, we're, we're really aware that the social media platforms move very fast. And so what works and what the algorithms are doing changes. So we're, we're going, we're striving to keep up to date and we'll be updating the guidelines as, as some of this comes in. Well, obviously, Physics World is on social media. We have a Twitter stream and Facebook and LinkedIn. So I guess I guess we'll have to look at what we do as well. And I'm going to have to download the guidelines. So um, do you want a, a shout out to where where are the guidelines? How can people find them? Where, where do they download them? Yes. So um, it's a, a very simple URL, um, iop.org slash social media guide. Um, like I said, there's a, a series of web pages. The one thing that I'd love to share, but doesn't work in an audio format, is the beautiful, beautiful infographic that Alexia White, who is known as Miss Neutrino on social media, she did a beautiful um, summary infographic of all the um, advice that we've given and several of our colleagues, particularly this nice little feedback loop about not feeding the trolls in the comments. Mm -hmm. They've cut those out and stuck them on their, their desks. So right, um, right. we'd invite people to yeah have a look on that because that's a, a really a nice summary and, and quick pointers that people can just have to, to look at. But yeah, iop.org slash social media guide. And if anyone has any opinions or anything they want to share, they can share it with us on our social media channels. Or um, if they email campaigns at iop.org, um, I'm, I'm on that email address. So um, I will be able to help and, and we'd, we'd love to hear from people if, if they think they, they are useful. <laughs> Well, that's been brilliant, Georgina. Thanks so much. And I'm sure I um, encourage everyone to download those guidelines, have a look and follow your advice. And hopefully let's get more people into physics. That would be a, a great outcome. So thanks very much, Georgina. Thank you very much. <laughs> Many experimental physicists will use vacuum equipment made by the Swedish company Atlas Copco, which owns the Edwards brand. The company has set science-based targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that are in line with the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. As well as reducing carbon emissions from the company's direct operations by 46% by 2030 when compared to 2019 levels, the company is committed to reducing emissions in its supply and product chains. To talk about these targets and how they will be met, I'm joined down the line by Sarah Fry, who is Head of Safety, Health, Environment at Atlas Copco's Vacuum Technique Division in Burgess Hill, West Sussex, 
in the UK. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. So, Sarah, why has Atlas Copco set these targets? Is this something that's come from within the company, or are you responding to your customers? Well, Atlas Copco is committed to being part of the solution for a better tomorrow. So setting science-based targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in line with the Paris Agreement is a very public declaration of our ambition. Science-based targets are set by companies to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. They're calculated based on what we know from independent climate science. These targets ensure a company's emissions are in line with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. The Paris Agreement was reached in 2015 when 195 of the world's governments committed to preventing the worst effects of climate change. To do that, we must work to limit the average global temperature increase to well below 2 degrees Celsius and pursue efforts to limit temperature increases to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Setting high ambition targets at the company level helps governments to achieve their targets and shows our intention to contribute to limiting the global temperature increase. There are clear benefits to us from setting such targets. Playing a leading role in the transition to a low carbon economy gives a competitive advantage. We challenge ourselves to develop and deliver even more energy saving solutions for our customers. We also reduce our risk of exposure to regulatory pressures due to carbon prices, which are expected to rise over time. Having our targets validated by an independent organisation like the Science-Based Targets Initiative also adds transparency and external credibility to our goals. The drivers for all this come from within the organisation, and these targets are an extension of our long-standing commitment to reducing our environmental impact. Our employees have a keen interest in the environmental credentials of the organisation they work for. And of course, customers and investors wish to deal with companies who have strong sustainability programmes. You set a target of 46% for the company's direct carbon reduction. How will that be achieved? If we are to succeed in our carbon reduction targets, it's vital that everyone in the company understands what we are doing and why. So training and communication is important. Within Atlas Copco Vacuum Technique, all employees complete two online trainings, one on our environmental goals in general and one specific to our science-based targets. In addition, we have been running a series of briefings for all senior site and divisional managers to ensure that they are clear on our targets and what they need to do to support these. When it comes to reducing our direct carbon emissions, known as scope one and scope two emissions, these mainly come from our use of electricity and of natural gas. So to reduce these emissions, we need to move to low carbon renewable sources of energy. We started this journey several years ago, and in 2021, 58% of all energy used in Atlas Copco operations was from renewable sources. And as we implement our science-based targets, we need to increase this further. Our next challenge will be to eliminate the use of natural gas, which we mainly use for heating. The options here are moving to electric heating, such as air or ground source heat pumps, or we're also investigating the use of biogas 
generated from waste and supported by renewable energy certificates. In addition, we have many local initiatives. For example, at Vacuum Techniques UK head office, where I am based, we offer a free shuttle to the station, electric vehicle charging points for employees, and we have just launched a salary sacrifice electric vehicle offering. And Sarah, can you give a specific example of how you can reduce carbon emissions involved with the development and manufacture of your vacuum components? Yes, certainly. In Atlas Copco Vacuum Technique, our first product company to use 100% renewable electricity was the Gamma factory four years ago. Since then, we have moved nearly all our product companies to 100% renewable electricity, backed by regulated renewable energy certificates. This is not always easy, as in some countries, there is limited availability of renewable electricity. Last year, Vacuum Technique was able to transition to fully renewable electricity at our large Edwards and CSK factories in South Korea, reducing our annual carbon emissions by around 16,000 tonnes. In addition, when we build a new factory, we design it to comply with green building codes, usually either LEED or BREAM. This promotes the inclusion of features such as solar installations, high levels of insulation, and rainwater harvesting. Mm, That's really interesting how how you're doing that. The the company has also set a carbon reduction target of 28% in your supply chain and also in how your products are used. How can you ensure that your customers are able to minimize carbon emissions when they use your vacuum products? The vast majority, well over 90% of our indirect emissions are from the electricity use of our products at customer locations. So this is where we need to focus if we're to reduce our scope three indirect emissions by 28% by 2030. There are three main ways we can minimize these emissions at customer locations. The first is by providing the most energy efficient products. Our customers request equipment, solutions and service that increase productivity and lower their carbon footprint. Energy efficiency is at the core of the innovations in many of Atlas Copco's products, and even higher gains are possible through the support we provide on how to use our products and through our service offering. One example in vacuum technique is the Edwards IXM range. This is our latest semiconductor dry pump technology, offering lower power products over a wider range of applications than any previous design from Atlas Copco. So how do we bring these benefits to existing customers? Well, we developed the IXM Hybrid Service Upgrade product to allow pumps currently in use in the market to be returned to our local service technology center. Through a fully engineered upgrade, the dry pump is converted to use the IXM low power mechanism whilst retaining all other elements of the system so it can be reinstalled directly with no change to customer connections or settings. This provides a 25% power saving over the original product. Wow, that's something. (laughs) Yes, it is. And the IXM hybrid product is currently deployed at a world-leading semiconductor customer, delivering around 700 metric tonnes reduction in carbon emissions over the first 20 months. 
the same project could deliver total annual savings of around 13,000 metric tonnes of carbon emissions at the completion of the full five-year programme. And you mentioned three ways, Sarah. What's the second way that um, you can minimise carbon emissions associated with how your products are used? Well, that's through the use of intelligent products to optimise energy use and therefore carbon emissions. For example, our Genius portal allows 24-7 remote mobile access to the vacuum pump while in use, so that insights on uptime and energy consumption can be provided. Similarly, Edcentra is an equipment monitoring and analytics platform for the semiconductor industry that analyzes operational data to optimize performance and therefore carbon emissions too. And Sarah, I think the third way has to do with um, forming partnerships with your customers to encourage them to use um, renewable energy. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. As most of our products use electricity, the impact from the use phase of our products and consequently their value chain footprint is affected by the availability of renewable energy in national energy mixes. We need to form partnerships with our customers to encourage their use of low carbon, 100% renewable electricity, which many of our larger customers are already doing as part of their own environmental commitments. Another technology supplied by Vacuum Technique, which helps our customers reduce their carbon emissions, is our range of abatement products. Our Edwards and CSK ranges of abatement systems prevent the emission of highly potent greenhouse gases and help our customers reduce their emissions of global warming gases. For example, some semiconductor manufacturing processes use gases such as perfluorocarbons and sulfur hexafluoride which are of high environmental concern due to their persistence and their high global warming potential. These substances may have global warming potentials thousands of times that of carbon dioxide, making them very potent global warmers. In 2021, Atlas Copco's installed base of abatement products prevented emissions equivalent to around 19 million tonnes of carbon dioxide at customers' facilities. Our partnerships in recycling technologies for customers' process gases can further reduce their carbon footprint. And and so what's the company's uh, second uh, biggest indirect carbon impact? Well, yes, that's interesting. After the energy use of products at customer locations, it's the embodied carbon in the materials and components used to make our products, which is our second largest indirect carbon impact. So Vacuum Technique is committed to supporting the circular economy through the reuse, recovery and recycling of these materials. Our business area has six divisions and two of these are service divisions, which are entirely focused on the remanufacture, repair and servicing of our products. When our products need replacing, we offer ways to refurbish them for reuse. We refurbish over 35,000 of them each year. At the end of their life cycle, our vacuum products can be disassembled so that their primary materials are recycled, keeping them out of landfills. We also aim to reuse or recycle our production waste wherever possible. In 2021, 93% of all waste generated in Atlas Copco was reused or recycled. And when you're developing new products, new vacuum products, do you do that with carbon emissions um, in mind? Of course. This is included in all new master specifications. 
we have a requirement that all new product developments include a target to reduce carbon emissions. To help our engineering teams measure these improvements, we use a product carbon footprint tool, which calculates the lifetime emissions of the new product and compares this to the previous generation. The same tool can be used to help customers measure the benefits of upgrading to a newer design of product. In addition, our technologies enable the manufacture of a wide range of environmental products, which support the transition to a low carbon society. For example, vacuum is essential to the production of solar cells and also to the production of low energy solid state lighting. And to ensure we stay focused on our science-based targets, we have organisational key performance indicators for both our direct and indirect emissions, which are reported annually. So, Sarah, you did physics at Cambridge University, and I understand that you're a chartered member of the Institute of Physics. How does that fit in with your work on sustainability and science-based targets? That's a good question. When I first started working in the field of safety, health and environment many years ago, it felt a long way away from the field of physics. But over recent years, the discipline has evolved into sustainability, and that's closely linked to physical principles, whether it's climate science, science-based targets and carbon accounting, or sustainable materials and sustainable buildings. So now there's a very close fit between being a physicist and a member of the Institute of Physics, and my work on sustainability and science-based targets. Well, that's great, Sarah. It's really interesting to hear about um, about what you're doing. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Sarah Fry, Georgina Phillips, and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks with Martina Mikulska at University College London about the antibacterial properties of patterned glass surfaces and how they can be used in medical settings. Andrew also chats with Julian Jones from Imperial College London about bioglass, a material that can heal bones and teeth. Physics World.